Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. My guest today is comedy writer, researcher, and author, Andrew Hunter-Murray. That's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host, from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKeek. My guest today is a comedy writer, fact finder, comedian, and author. He's probably best known for being one of the researchers, or elves, on one of my all-time favorite shows, the renowned British comedy panel show, QI, formerly hosted by the great Stephen Fry, and now hosted by the equally great Sandy Toxvig, uh, and is also a regular panelist and co-host on QI's spin-off podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, which has toured the UK, Australia, and continental Europe, and has been downloaded over 200 million times, as well as the subsequent BBC2 series, No Such Thing as the News. In this capacity, he has co-authored the Book of the Year, Book of the Year 2018, and Book of the Year 2019, which looks at the favorite, true, but unusual facts of each said year. He also contributes humorous journalistic pieces to the magazine Private Eye and hosts their podcast, Page 94. In his spare time, he is a member of the improvised Jane Austen-themed comedy troupe, Ostentatious. He has recently written his debut work of fiction, the novel The Last Day, which was officially released on Thursday, February 6th. This is my conversation with Andrew Hunter Murray. Andrew Hunter Murray, hello, welcome, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Uh, so you have a, uh, your first novel out, uh, The Last Day, which you told me is publication day is officially today, February 6th. Yes, we are just in the evening in the UK, and this is the very first day of the last day being actually available for people to buy, so it's hugely exciting. D does it feel good to finally get it out there? I know this has been about a three-year project for you. Uh, yeah, it feels great. It's very, very weird writing a book, um, because you don't... I Well, I certainly had no idea of the timescale involved, and I think if someone had said to me when I first had the idea for the story... This is going to be a sizable chunk of the next five years of your life. I might have been too alarmed to carry on with it. So it's, I think it was very helpful to kind of have the idea, start exploring it a bit more, think, hey, I, I think there could be something here. And then, you know, a couple of years later is when you actually get to send it to a publisher. And you only then do you get to find out what anyone else thinks of it, really. So, yeah, it's kind of crept up on me. You know, you, you've always... <sighs> written about, you know, the weird but true, you know, with, with QI and, and Private Eye and, and no such thing. What made you want to get into the world of fiction? I think I've always wanted to, but I just haven't known how I was going to do it. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to write books of some description, and they were always going to be novels, you know, fiction. Um, so, And it's just been a kind of funny old route, I guess, getting here. Because my day job, as you say, is finding out facts. It's finding out um, really unusual facts in particular for my jobs at QI and at uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, the podcast. 
So yeah, I don't know how I don't know I don't know why it took so long to get around to it. I was convinced I was going to write something funny. Actually, I, I grew up on Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, P.G. Woodhouse. You know the titans, twentieth-century yeah. comic writing. And I thought, whatever I write, I know it's going to be very, very funny, like these guys. And I wrote a load of short stories, which were comic and slightly sci-fi-ish. And then I had the idea for this book, and I just couldn't. I couldn't not write it, basically. I just felt like I, ah, right, this is what I'm going to write. I understand. I'll do this. So um, there are almost no jokes at all in this book, which if you'd said that to me six years ago, I'd have been shocked. But here we are. Do you, you know, the book is is a, is a sci-fi book, um, and there's a lot of debate about how much truth is out there in, in sci-fi works, whether it's films or, or, or books or movies. Where where are you on that? How how much truth can we find um, in in this genre? Um, well, tr- oh, truth is a tricky word. Um, I I think that gosh, that's really hard because the the works in the genre of of sci fi and fantasy and they they have such an enormous range of qualities of truthfulness. And I think the only thing that really matters is whether you can get the, the, the reader or the listener or the viewer on board with you so that we are all traveling in the same car, as it were. I, I think if you look at, uh, you know, very, if you look at works of speculative fiction that are very close to our own world, um, that might be, for example, Fatherland by Robert Harris. Simple premise, the Nazis won. Let's find out what, what Berlin is like 20 years later. That does not require much of a leap of imagination at all, but it does require a very well-realized and thought-out world. And then you look at, um, what's the name of the recent, it's a great uh, sci-fi novel from China where mankind literally puts rockets onto the planet, the wandering earth, that's what it's called, the wandering earth where there's something coming which is going to wipe out mankind, so humanity just puts rockets on the earth and blasts off in search of a better life. That is so difficult to do. It's let's be honest, that's implausible. It's unfeasible, and yet, if it's done skillfully, you get people along with you. So, uh, I think truth is truth is there in the extent to which you're saying things about the world today, uh, rather than about the inherent plausibility of what you're talking about. You know, what, what was your, you, you mentioned, you know, this is a three or four year process, but in terms of, you know, the research outline to getting it to paper, how would you compare yeah. writing this versus, you know, writing something for, for private eye or, you know, com, coming up with, with a fact or a joke for, for QI? Mm. So will your listeners know private eye? Because I, I don't know if it travels very far oh. outside the UK. Fair. Um, um, Private Eye, main, the main satirical magazine in the UK, if you like. Um, imagine The Onion, but with lots of investigative journalism on the side of it. Right. Um, is about as well as I can describe it. Um, I've now forgotten the question. What was it? Oh. <laughs> How different the process is? Yeah, just the overall writing process. Oh, gosh. I mean, I had so little expectation of getting something really published when I had this idea that I just felt free to spent ages researching, reading all manner of articles about uh, ecology, about zoology, about whatever it might be that would affect uh, the world that I was building in the last day. So the the QI and the private eye work I do is all, you know, coming up with something for this week. 
Whereas uh, this was something where it was kind of my own little private kingdom to build as, uh, as the months went past. And I started by just getting the idea for the novel and going away for about six months and just writing by myself what would happen in this world. No plot, no characters, nothing like that. Just world building. And that was a huge luxury to have. The, uh, the novel is set in the year 2059, which, which in many ways seems like a very specific year. Um, what, was there any meaning or significance behind choosing that year? I know some futurists consider that the, the date when we're going to see the collapse of sort of modern economics. There is no uh, Kabbalic significance in 2059. I think I wanted something that was far away enough that seemed a little far away, but close enough that it's recognizable. And I think for me, about 40 years is that sweet spot. You know, most of the people we know um, will hopefully still be alive in 40 years time, but the world, we have no idea what it'll look like. Should we say what the book is about before we go to film? I realize oh, we're talking yeah, about Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but yeah, it's basically about this uh, Ellen Hopper, who's a, a scientist working on a, a rig in the North Atlantic Ocean, taking like water, gauging water temperatures and, and currents and all that. And then she's brought back to London on a, mis on a, on a mystery by a, her old dying professor. Is that, is, yeah. is that about sum it up? <laughs> that is what it's about, but we have slightly buried the lead of the world in which this takes place. Right. Which is, this happens in a world where, due to a catastrophe in the heavens 40 years ago, the rotation of the Earth has ground to a halt. There is now one side of the Earth which faces in towards the sun and one half which faces outwards towards the cold, dead universe. So, yeah, that is the, the world in which Alan Hopper is living. And uh, as you say, she's on this uh, rig out in the North Atlantic as the story begins, you know, cut off from a very unpleasant and authoritarian Britain that she's, uh, she's kind of fled. <laughs> We, although we, Britain, although yeah. obviously Britain is one of the very, very <laughs> lucky countries that is actually on the sunlit side of the earth, and I'm afraid a lot of the states is not doing quite as well. We uh, we do see a lot of, I guess, common sci-fi tropes. You know, it's slightly dystopian. There's some shady government figures. There's a military aspect. Um, th this idea as ver you know verbs as nouns like the slow, the stop, the winnow. For you. Why do these specific elements work when telling a story that's fantasy and also set in the future? Uh, so, do you mean the elements of language building a specific vocabulary? Yeah, la language, <laughs> but you know, but just the idea that you know this sort of dystopian, the dystopian world that's sort of you know usually run by the military or or some shady higher up people. Yeah, well, it's a funny one because it's. Writing this novel in Britain, which is still a reasonably healthily functioning democracy, that is a big element of um, of fantasy, really. That that you know, Britain is a is a one party state. There is no longer a royal family in this novel. There is there is one government, and there are no elections. But really, when you look around the world, that is not a, that's not a fantasy for <laughs> for you know billions of people living around the world. So it's it's partly reflecting on uh, what happens when civilizations undergo times of stress. Um, when in times of scarcity or in times of risk, uh, not only are people much more willing to seize power for authoritarian ends, but they're also much more willing to uh, 
to vote for or select uh, authoritarian leaders. So that has kind of fed into uh, a lot of the you know, political narratives from the UK today. There are uh, various politicians who have an interest in, in telling us that our civilization is under a unique amount of stress and that it's far better that they should be put in, as m in charge of as much as possible. So that's probably a reflection on that too. And those politicians always exist. It's just a matter of the extent to which uh, any particular democracy wants to believe them or not at that time as to how persuasive they're being. Um, yeah. Britain, Britain has a kind of um, great national myth that we are completely resistant to dictatorships simply because, you know, there hasn't been a Napoleon here, there hasn't been a Hitler, there hasn't been a Stalin. We think, well, there must be something in the British character that, that sees through this nonsense. Um, and, you know, I'm not so sure about that myself. I, I think we've avoided it through a combination of judgment, but also luck. And so, yeah, that is one of the elements in this novel um, that this novel is trying to look at is, you know, what is necessary to make a people with a several several centuries long history of, of democracy and improving democracy uh, turn against it. Uh, we mentioned that the name the name of your lead character uh, is Ellen Hopper. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and we're seeing Saiba in particular has always had female protagonists. You know, whether it's The Hunger Games or even something like Buffy or going back to Ellen Ripley with Alien. As a writer. Why is you know why is telling a story from from a woman's perspective uh, effective for you? What what is it about that perspective that maybe differs if if the lead character was male? Um, this is a this is a really interesting one. So you you, you mentioned Ellen Ripley there. Ellen Hopper's name is no accident. That is definitely <laughs> a partial tribute to to Ellen Ripley. Um, I, I I don't know in general what it is about uh, science fiction and female protagonists, but certainly when I thought of this particular story, I could not uh, shake the character of Hopper from my head. I did think, so, you know, very early on, well, Ellen Hopper is here and she's the main character at the moment. What if, what if she was a man, I suppose? But it never quite worked. I just had such a clear idea of her as kind of as soon as I started plotting that I just, she, she was kind of there you know, ready and, and waiting to be written. And so, um, yeah, I can't really answer in a more general sense than that. <laughs> Just, yeah. you know, when you meet someone and it feels like you've known them for ages. That is really how I feel about, uh, about you know, meeting Ellen Hopper for the first time. Uh, you mentioned that Ellen comes from Ellen Ripley. I'm curious, does the Hop, when I saw the name Hopper, my mind yeah. went to Stranger Things. Is it, did that have any oh, connection? Oh, Hopper. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it is. I'm pretty sure it's not, but I can't guarantee it. I, <laughs> um, I mean, any. I would like to see a world in which Ellen Ripley meets Chief Hopper. I think that'd be um, a thing to celebrate for fans of pretty much everything. But uh, yeah, so I don't think it's Hopper, although I do love Stranger Things. Yeah. Um, you know, you we talked about the, the the premise of this book in you know in which the world stops turning, which. For, for a lot of, I think I, I, I read a review that said it's a scientifically preposterous premise that works, you know, and, and I know uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has talked about in interviews what would happen if the world has stopped turning for, for, for even a second. Um, where, where did that specific idea come from for you? And, and was there any research involved in looking into what would happen if, if this became a thing? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
I mean, that that was the absolutely initial idea, and I can't describe it as anything other than a bolt from the blue. When I was walking along the street one day, I can picture now where and when I was. I just saw, in my mind's eye, the Earth hanging in space, rotation ground to a halt, and instantly I just wanted to know what happens next. I have to find out what would happen. And then <laughs> you think, well, this is a pretty big operation, especially for a first novel. So um, I contacted some friends of mine. I have a friend who's an astrophysicist, which is very useful indeed. Um, she is doing a PhD uh, in astrophysics at Oxford. And I wrote to her and I said, look, I've had this completely insane, implausible, impractical idea. How can I do it? And she contacted her colleagues and, and conversed with them about it. And then they she got back in touch and said, well, here are some options. You know, you want to stop the planet? Fine, okay, let's do it. So that was really, really exciting to know that there were options available. I think I have taken lots of liberties. I mean, I, I, I've done it in a much faster time scale than I think would happen if the Earth ever did meet one of these hypervelocity stars. Those are the things which, uh, that's the thing which passes by yeah. in this book. And it's uh, enormous gravitational pull kind of, hauls the Earth's rotation back um, until it kind of drifts to a stop. So that would, I think, take longer. And I think if it ever did happen in reality, it would be considerably messier than I have uh, than I've made it in the last day. I think the odds of any of us getting out of that alive would be very, very slim. I mean, amazingly slim. However, those hypervelocity stars do exist. We've observed them. They, uh, they are uh, rogue stars, if you like. They don't... Um, they don't have a, uh, a solar system of their own. They are just barreling through space. They're incredibly large. We've observed about 20 in all of uh, human history. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it's, the odds of that happening are very slim, but I wanted to make it believable because, as I said earlier, if you don't have that, uh, you've got nothing. You know, you've got nothing in your hand. So, um, yeah, it had to be plausible. Um, get, given the you know so much of the book is about science and scientists, um, you you start the whole novel with um, a passage from the Book of Saint James, um, a, a, oh, yeah. of the New Testament. What what went into that into that decision? Considering there's also you know there's always this quote unquote tug of war between science and religion. Yeah, I, I think the UK has a a bit less of a tug of war. Uh, than North America, not sure, but um, I suspect it might be a bit, yeah. a bit more settled over here. Um, the Book of St. James, I, I think I found that passage years before thinking of the book, and I just thought it was very beautiful. And then it's it's a passage. Um, it's actually weirdly, I don't think it is the New Testament. I think it's one of the apocrypha. So it's um, it's an Easter egg. It's a deleted scene from the New Testament, if you like, and. Um, it's uh, it's a very beautiful passage describing um, a, a I think it's a shepherd and uh, St James as he's narrating this is describing the moment where everything freezes in position just for a moment and uh, he doesn't know it but that is heralding the birth of Christ and the entire world stops the water remains pouring but everything in it the shepherd the sheep the birds above are still they're not moving and um, I, I wanted to pick that because it, it sums up um, this kind of strange, beautiful vision in this, I think it might be called a proto-gospel, technically. I'm not sure if it is or not. Um, 
as it doesn't have any special religious significance, but um, it's describing a moment, a landmark moment in our species history, if you like. So I thought that had a bit of significance because the book is describing another, you know, very landmark moment in the history of our species. Uh, you know, speaking of beautiful language, you couple of phrases that stood out for me in the book was uh, hear the uh, how Ellen could hear the grin on the other side of the phone, and and yeah. and my favorite phrase, uh, sclerotic heart. I think when you're when you're talking about flying over the flying in the chopper uh, over oh, yeah, L- London, the sclerotic heart of the New London. Britain. Yeah. Um, what what is what is your approach to to language when writing? Um. That's a biggie, Dan. That's a that's a that's a huge question. My approach to language. I can't answer that. I'll have a go. Um, I think you you have to. I mean, I don't think anyone summed it up better than George Orwell. George Orwell wrote an essay about the English language. It's it's much cited by writers in the UK. Um, I think the key is to cut out any phrase that you have heard a thousand times before. Probably even actually saying a thousand times there is a little bit cliched, you know. You've got the luxury when you're writing a book to um, to write it in any one of a, a hundred different styles. So if you can come up with fresh phrasing that makes the reader see something in a new way, um, then that is exciting. Now, you have to be, I think, a little bit sparing with that, because if you do that in every single sentence, you might end up with something that's quite overwritten. But um, we all know that sensation of kind of hearing on the phone when someone is grinning, at the or smiling at least, at the other end of the line. There's something in the quality of the voice that changes. So with the phrase hearing the grin, that's uh, hopefully describing something that people know, but they might not have put into words themselves yet. Uh, it's funny. It is a bit like writing um, jokes. Um, so there's a there's an old line. I can't remember who said it, but it's basically a joke. Uh, making a joke is like being on a horse and jumping over a little canyon or a gap. You know, there's some kind of void you're jumping over. You have to pitch the gap just right because if the gap is too wide, you're going to fall in, and if the gap is too small no one's impressed. So you have to find a, a joke that is different enough from most people's experience that is funny, uh, and yet it's close enough that people can relate to it. And I think the same is true of a, a sentence. I think that's, um, that's what I'm pitching for when I'm writing, is I'm trying to write a sentence which will hopefully be elegant or have something nice in it, have a little, you know, a little extra flourish of language. But I'm hoping to stay within clear English for people um, because you're also trying to read um, a book and if you're trying to write a thrilling bit you know you look at what Lee Child does he has an incredible way of writing sentences so the sentences could be a couple of hundred words long but the way he structures the uh, the verbs at each clause means it moves like an absolute train so yeah it, it depends what you bit what which bit you're trying to write if you're trying to write a beautiful descriptive passage it might be slightly different yeah, to uh, to writing a fine thing. Well, yeah, it's just interesting because you know, with, with that phrase "sclerotic heart," it's like it's not one that we come across every day. But I had mm. a very I had a very vivid picture when when that phrase was written, ju- just because of you know where where this where the action and the scene is taking place, and and yeah. ju- just sort of those two words together. 
Um, I think another really interesting thing about this book is Hopper always notice, no, notices when either she lies or, or somebody else lies. And there are a lot of scientists out there, people like Harris and Dawkins, who talk about the what science can, can teach us about morality. Yeah. You know, so, so I guess why do you think people lie and, and why do you think Hopper lies? Oh, I mean, people lie for all kinds of reasons. People lie if it makes them... People can lie, you know, as a very final resort if they're really pushed to it or they're trying to protect someone from harm. Or they can lie because it's fun or they can get away with it. Uh, the, the range of motivations is, is much, much larger than I could possibly do justice to. I tried to put Hopper at the second end of the spectrum I just described there. Um, one of her main characteristics is that she is trying to find out the truth. It's what's driving her. It what It's what kind of drove her out of Britain in the first place, uh, a sense that she could not cope with uh, a truth that she discovered. So I think that's why it's more noticeable to her when she lies or when, or when someone's lying to her. But that is, yeah, that's her superpower, if you like. It's excessive yeah. dedication to the truth. Um, you mentioned how in, in this book, you know, America's not doing so well, but Britain is kind of still surviving. Um, but Hopper talks about Britain alone, and they're in a bit of a, of, of a self-delusion of, of being better. Um, and I know that Brexit w was just ratified. So yeah, 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 Brexit, here we go. All so right. is, is that becoming a reality? What the the self delusion and um, you know that that they're that they're it's doing better. Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> Brexit is such a is such an interesting thing. It was it, it the vote had already happened for it um, when I when I came up with the idea for the book. So I don't think there's any question about whether or not it was it fed into my thought process at the time. Um, but I hope that's that's what thrillers and speculative thrillers uh, often can do if they're done well is they make you look afresh at the at the place you are in today um, I think I'm not very good at making big grand prognostications about you know the national character but there is a there is a sense of um, Britain has always existed in tension with its nearest neighbors and this amazing geographical quirk of having uh, the channel the English channel uh, as it's called in England, um, between us and France, which is really, it's narrow. You know, at its narrowest point, it's about 20 miles. On a clear day, you can you can see pretty much across it. Um, has, I think, changed the English psyche. And England has, for centuries, existed in this kind of tension between engaging and withdrawing. And so, yeah, I think Brexit is the latest, um, is the latest expression of that tension, if you like. I don't think, I, I think it, but I say the latest for a reason. I think it is uh, not the end of Britain's relationship with European countries. I think there are many more chapters in the story of Britain and its nearest neighbors ahead. But this is, yeah, this is where we find ourselves now. <laughs> you know, Hopper also makes a reference to uh, the idea, you know, that government is just a performance um, or or yeah, government yeah. is is that maybe a a commentary on on who's in power today, either in England or or in the states? Oh, you think it's a Trump thing? I mean, I mean, yeah. So much government is performance. You know, the 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 dominant 
it just slightly frustrates me a bit about how much government is performance, but that is partly because of how much attention is paid to performances by various governments. You know, the 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 political journalism, I, certainly in the UK, I don't know too much about it in the USA, but political journalism here is um, is at least as concerned with um, relationships and momentary changes of position on the bridge of the national ship um, as it is concerned with slightly more mundane stuff like um, you know are we going to build this road are we going to build this railway line that's a huge discussion going on in Britain at the moment it has been for about 10 years are we going to build one particular railway line um, it's quite embarrassing considering China has just built an entire hospital in 10 days but but there we go this is <laughs> This is infrastructure in the UK. So, yeah, I think I wanted to have a look at that government as performance because the government in this book has taken a lot of steps um, that are performative, but it's also taken a lot of uh, real steps which have not received the scrutiny they should have done. So, yeah, that's a. I do feel that quite strongly. Um, and I think another thing that maybe could, you know, um, become a possibility is your, the last day uh, does reference nuclear weapons and, and, and how they could be used. And we're seeing maybe uh, some countries start to ramp up their, their, their nuke efforts. Um, are, are you concerned that maybe any part of your fantasy world could become reality in that sense? Um, not in the nuclear sense. But that's mostly because I've got a very poor imagination for, uh, for what an actual... A nuclear attack on my home would look like. I think it's just so far beyond my imaginings because I've had a very lucky life living, you know, in uh, in Western Europe and being the age I am. Uh, I'm in my thirties, um, so no, I'm not concerned about that bit coming true, or I'm not letting myself become concerned about that bit coming true. I do think that, with the exception of the planet grinding to a halt, I think it's possible or even perhaps likely that a lot of the rest of the novel could become true over the next 50 years. That sounds very alarmist and sensationalist, but fundamentally the book is about a world that's getting warmer and it's about a world where people are crossing borders with themselves and their family in order to survive and it's about a world where countries are withdrawing from each other, where traditional relationships are breaking down. So I think you can see where I'm going with all of that. You know, it's a it's intended to reflect our world in those respects. Uh, one one interesting just flavor of Hopper is that she's also a smoker, um, and a lot of these you know strong characters like Sherlock, for example, it was famously a, a an opium addict. Whether it's you know drugs or alcohol or or anything like that, how does having a vice how does that enhance a character? Mm. I think I think anything. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't think smoking is as much of a vice in the UK as it is in North America either. Which, um, although it has been almost, almost criminalised in the UK, it's not quite there yet. But it is, it is still a little bit of a vice here, and it's, um, yeah, I can only think of it as a way of adding, um, adding, as you say, flavour, adding a, an extra element, so that your characters are not all the same. Um, but people's weaknesses are much more interesting um, than their strengths, you know. And so, 
we, we hear this phrase, uh, strong female character bandied around an enormous amount. You know, strong female character it was very important that it's led by a strong female character. I, I have to say that I, I want to see characters who are human. I, I, if I want to see strong characters, either male or female, I'll go and watch a Marvel film, you know? Um, and, and I know they've been very good at expanding the emotional range of their characters <laughs> within a traditional three act structure where the last act is a big fight. But, um, you know, weakness and the, the point at which someone makes a decision is really interesting for a character. And decisions can come from feeling like a you're in an overwhelming position of strength, but I think it's much more common that really difficult decisions, which is what we read books for, you know, um, someone once said to me, a, a theatre teacher, I think, said to me, Look, no one goes to the theatre to watch to watch well-adjusted people um, having a good time, sorting out their differences amicably, and not getting into any interpersonal drama. I think that applies to pretty much all art forms. What we're interested in is people having difficult decisions, people having to make choices, which are not good either way. Um, so that is where I think weakness can become interesting. And that, you know, smoking is a, is a very small weakness, but it's... Uh, it can be perhaps an indication of, of stress. Uh, one of the one of the quotes of praise on the back of the the book, the copy that I received, um, is from Stephen Fry. Yes. Um, considering the long working relationship you've had with him, does that high praise carry any extra significance? Um. Well, gosh, I mean, I'm I'm just. I'm extremely delighted that <laughs> he said that about the book, obviously. Uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, and I'm not going to try and read it out now, but it was, um, yeah, it was lovely to hear that. I mean, even if even if Fry had not been my boss, and therefore susceptible to me leaning on him to say to read the book and say how much he liked it, he has been involved in some of the most fabulous comedies, and he's one of the most brilliant writers of the last several decades, you know, his his essays, his novels themselves, written six brilliant novels, um, all of that means he is just this titanic figure in uh, in British culture, and um, and I'm using titanic in the good sense, not in the <laughs> comes a cropper halfway across the Atlantic sense, so um, yeah, it was lovely hearing that from him, that was a, that was a very good day. Um. You know, speaking speaking of books, uh, you know, we talked about your your background in in comedy writing. What what do you think a, a book and a novel allows you to do that maybe comedy and, and other mediums don't in in terms of telling a story? Um, what's special about the novel? I really think it's the amount of time you have and the amount of time you can spend with a character. That's the first thing. Um. It is, um, for example, I, I um, sometimes perform in a show which is based on the works of Jane Austen. It's an improv group called Ostentatious. It's great fun. But when you look at adaptations of Jane Austen's novels, almost all the ones, in my opinion, that are done as a film in two hours cannot hope to do justice to the psychological complexity that you, that you can get when you are reading a novel. Um, I don't think that's the only thing that that novels have over other forms of art. I think the, the really wonderful thing about novels um, is the fact that to a greater extent than with other forms of art, you and the novelist are creating this thing together. You are kind of 
you know, you're kind of hauled into their study, you're sat down in a chair, and they're not showing you a screen, they're not showing you how anyone has to look or talk, unless they're being really descriptive about it, which is also fine. Um, but there is a sense when you're reading a book that your consciousness kind of moves slightly out of your head towards the page, and the page comes slightly out of itself towards you, and with a good book, when you're really absorbed in it, you and the novel kind of meet in the middle. And there is this amazing sense of um, connection between you and an author who may have been dead for 400 years. You don't know, you know. Um, well, you probably do know if you're reading their novel, whether they've been dead for 400 years or not. But there is this sense of connection that, um, that I find really um, amazing and, and moving a lot of the time. You know, I'm... Um, reading something by John Steinbeck at the moment. Now, John Steinbeck isn't around uh, to, to hear my reaction to it, but nonetheless, there is a connection there, even though one of the parties is dead. And I think that is um, something pretty special about novels. And I cannot believe my luck that this book has now gone out into the world. There will be people reading it who may not know me, you know, <laughs> they, but they will be doing half of the work themselves and creating it. And I find that pretty great. Um, I notice, especially in in Britain, there's overlap between comics who either have an interest in science or a background in science, like Daryl Brien, for example. Uh, a year and a half ago, I talked to Robin Insey. Um, oh, cool. Ricky Gervais is another prominent example. What do you What do you attribute that to? Oh gosh, um, there's a there's a strain of. Um... There's a strain of British comedy, um, just a strain, but which is uh, very, you know, overeducated, and um, <laughs> like right down to the the guys from Monty Python who were all Oxbridge graduates. You know, there is a there is a, a, a yeah. I think there have always been groups of comedians who um, get their laughs partly from a, a lovely contrast between being very intellectual and being very stupid. And so um, I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly why that is, but it's probably to do with, um, it's probably to do with generous student grants in the 60s, 70s and 80s, which meant you didn't immediately have to get a job after leaving because you didn't have, you know, an enormous load of debt hanging over your head. Therefore, you could just muck around and see if you could go to the BBC and get a series. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whether that's it or not. So, uh, but then again, I think that's still happening now. I think there is just this lovely connection. It, in my days going to the Edinburgh Fringe, it was always doctors. Doctors, medical students, always did comedy reviews. I have no idea why. I have no idea why it was doctors and not the engineers who always had some kind of sketch group going on. There we go. Uh, now, is it is it true you've already sold the the film rights to the last day, and will you be writing the screenplay for it? There is a company looking into it, but it's it's not um, it's it's not I'm not going to give any date because you know the road to Hollywood is is absolutely littered with the corpses of novels that never quite got off the ground or made it there. So I, I think a company. Well, I definitely know there is a company who. Um, 
are a brilliant firm. They're called Stone Village, and they are working on Station Eleven at the moment, actually, which you may remember is a fabulous, again, slightly speculative, mostly real sci-fi novel from a few years ago. Um, they're working on that, and they read the last day, and they loved it, and they said, "Look, we're, we're keen to get cracking on this." Um, so that is that is ongoing. Um, I think I had better hand over the writing of the screenplay to. Uh, to someone else, <laughs> although I will, I do hope to be as involved as I can be. But uh, also, I'm quite a slow writer, so probably only hold things up. Um, speaking of writing, how did you end up writing for Norwegians? Oh God, you found out about that, Dan? You've done your research. I have to say, I have to credit it um, through improv. I met a couple of uh, really fun Norwegians called Kristin and Veslame, and um, I, we, God, um, we we all went out. In fact, I made two. I made wrote two scripts for them, uh, different combinations of Norwegians, but always with a brilliant uh, Norwegian actor called uh, Veslame Mercred. And um, one of them was called um, it was called Eight Days in Tokyo, as far as I remember. Um, and we went out to Tokyo to film this sitcom pilot with me being the screenwriter, scriptwriter, and um, and these these two brilliant Norwegian actors being these two young women who were in Tokyo. They weren't sure why. They were a bit lost. They didn't really know what was going on. And every night, we would take the scenes that we were going to film the next day, or we would translate them from English into Norwegian, <laughs> and then we would go out the next day and film them, and I would understand almost nothing of what was being said because the the dialogue and in fact the crew were all Norwegian um, and and in spite of that I could hear some of my lines and the way they were being delivered and then the length and delivery I could just go oh yeah I remember that joke I wrote that's what it would sound like if it was in Norwegian there we go so we went and filmed that it was an amazing time um, the series did not get anywhere it wasn't like as these things often don't but it, it was truly fun it was great Do it was you... surreal <laughs> I, you know, in, in addition to, to, to British film, I really love a lot of the work that's coming out of Scandinavia right now. Do you, do you find any maybe similarities in their style or, or their sense of humor compared to the British? Oh, gosh. Um, it's been a while since I've caught up with enough Scandinavian stuff. I think, I think there probably is a kinship in the fact that we're both, uh, uh, there are a lot of nations between Britain and Scandinavia, which uh, are former colonial powers. Um, which have adjusted to not being colonial powers with greater or lesser degrees of uh, acceptance. I think Norway's probably coping quite well. Um, Sweden ran half of Europe in the 17th century. Remarkable. No one talks about that now. They should. Um, and we, we talked about QI a little bit, and in the podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. Uh, your favorite fact from the series, I've heard it's the one about the, the kangaroo. Oh, yeah. It was a bit rude. Is that female kangaroos have three vaginas. Yes. What a fact. I, you know, you can't not tell someone that. I found out that fact in my interview for the job at QI. It was oh. pretty much the first QI fact I learned. And it's the only one I can remember when anyone says, do you know a fact? And it's not always appropriate to say it. <laughs> Sometimes it's very inappropriate to say it. But it's the only one I've got. Um, do, you, do you remember any of your facts from uh, No Such Thing as a Fish that you enjoy? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, I like the fact that in German, if you want to say you don't care about something... You say, it's sausage to me. Ooh. Yeah, das ist mir Wurst. 
Very, Which is great. Right. It's awesome to me. What a great phrase. What a language. What a people. Yeah. Um, Mar- I just had an interview with Margot Robbie where she said, uh, 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 in Australia, uh, there's a saying that goes, we ain't, you can't just come here and fuck a spider. Amazing. Right? What, is, what does that mean? It, it's basically just like, we don't have time for that. Like, that's, like, we're, we're in a hurry. Like, like, there's no time for that. You can't just come in here with your buddies and do that. Like, that's kind that of what means. it is. That's great. Yeah. See, that is really great. There's a French one, pisser dans un violon, which is, that's like pissing in a violin. It means it's useless. This is a useless endeavor. Yeah. What are we, it's pointless. It's, it's fucking a spider. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, can't remember it exactly, but it, it, there's a clip of her on YouTube on uh, on Graham Norton saying that if you're if you're interested in uh, in, in finding it. Um, quickly before we wrap up, you you briefly um, mentioned Monty Python, um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts or if you had any words on Terry Jones. Oh, um, I mean, no thoughts beyond what everyone has already said. He was absolutely magnificent. He held the Pythons together when they were filming. Um, he held the Pythons together when they were filming the life of Brian. Um, he it, he was yeah he was remarkable. I've, <laughs> everyone has their you know their internal reel if they're a Monty Python fan of you know a dozen moments that yeah. Terry will have produced that are just magnificent. I loved his weird angry women characters. Um, there's there's not much funnier to a certain British comedy mind than seeing yeah. Terry Jones dressed as a woman sort of squawking. Um. The novel's now out. Uh, series Q of, of QI, I think, just finished or, or, is, or is just wrapping That's up. That's right. Cruising into the harbor, yep. Um, so what can we expect um, from Andrew Hunter Murray in the next little while? Oh, gosh. A lie down, I think. <laughs> uh, lie down and a cup of tea. Um, and I know, just briefly, has anyone ever confused you for the other Andy Murray? It happens constantly. Really? It's, uh, it's a hardy print. No, I mean, not constantly because he is about, you know, 18 inches taller than I am. He's got <laughs> he's got very strong upper body strength. Um, I did grow up in Wimbledon, so it was fine for the first 16 odd years before <laughs> he got really, really good at tennis. And then, and I was just playing Andy Murray back in the day. And then as time went on, I started realizing this, uh, this Andy Murray guy, he was not just a blip. And I was going to have to dig out the middle name and go as Andrew Hunter Murray from now on. Well, uh, the book is The Last Day by Andrew Hunter Murray. Andrew, thank you so much for for chatting with me tonight. Thank you, Dan. That was grand. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and And it's a great book. Thank you. That was my conversation with QI Elf, comedy writer, improviser, and now published author, Andrew Hunter Murray. His debut novel, The Last Day, is available now. That does it for me today. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Goodbye for now. I just like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>